you would please open your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Our message today will be focusing on the second half of it, beginning in verse 17, but it's important, especially regarding this message, that we understand second half of Ephesians 4 in light of the first half of Ephesians 4. So we're going to read the entire chapter, beginning with verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This is the reading of the Word of God. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head that is Christ from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies according to the properly measured working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you heard him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, to lay aside in reference to your former conduct the old man which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed so that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk 
in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Let us pray. Good and wonderful Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to come into this building, to gather as your unified church, Father, in the presence of your Spirit and your Son, Jesus Christ, to give glory and worship and honor to you here in this place. You are the focus here in this building, Father. It's your word that we are opening up this afternoon. Please enlighten us and guide us and teach us through your word. Have your words, your message come through this book this afternoon. Let us understand what it means. Let us be taught by it. Let us be guided by your spirit to be affected, to be changed by it. So that we will understand the new life that has been given us through your son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice he gave us by giving his own body for us that we might live through his death. Please bless this message, Father. Bless your people. Bless your word as it is read aloud and preached to the name of your glory, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Get water real quick. When we look out into the world lately, we see a world that has a bit of an identity crisis. This world doesn't seem to know what it is anymore, especially in this country here and now. This country doesn't know what it is, doesn't know what it wants to be. It's filled with people that want to be, that want to be known more as individuals than as the United States or as a united country. It's a world that's focused on self-identity. You get to choose who you are in this world. You get to choose what gender you are. You get to choose what race you are, what culture you're from. It's all up for grabs. You just reach out and you take it, and it's yours. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be born into it. You don't have to relate to it. You just call it your own. You get to appropriate anything you want in this world. In addition to self-identity, it also wants to tell us that we are all about self-improvement. Once you've chosen what you want to be, now you have to improve. You have to get better. Bookstores are filled with more self-help books than Bibles. There's rows of them, shelves of them, constantly people that have told you they have figured out the secret to tell you how to be a better you, to be the best you you can be. Even certain pastors want to tell you how you can have the best life you can have. It's all about you. And in an entertainment culture, we're also talking about self-reliant people who are building brands out of people. It's all about branding, marketing, self-marketing, self-influential people. People literally call themselves influencers. They want to build up a brand so that you follow them. We have all these social media sites like TikTok and, and YouTube where people are categorized by how many followers you have. How many people are following me? It's all about the self. But when we look at the text that we've just read, Paul isn't talking about self here. He's talking about the church. He's talking, the entire book of Ephesians is talking about the unified church being a new man in Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. He's telling us we need to actually change, but not into something that's focused on self, but something that's focused on something far greater. And it's a change that we find out that we can't do on our own. It's a change that's actually impossible. This world wants to just decide what they want to be and they change at the drop of a hat. We don't have that ability. We change only at the, the invitation of God by his spirit coming into us as individuals and working in us to change us into something new. And collectively, the church becomes something different. So as we go through this passage this afternoon, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what the world looks like in light of, in light of this passage. Then we're going to look at what the church is supposed to look like in light of this passage. And we're going to look at individually what Paul tells us to do specifically to help us change into that image that we're supposed to become like. And then finally, as we should always do, we're going to focus on Christ. 
So let us begin. We, well, let's give some context. First of all, this book, Ephesians, what is this book? Where, how do we get to this point in chapter 4? The book was written by Paul. We've just spent over a year going through the book of Colossians. It seems like Paul probably wrote this around the same time that he was imprisoned in Rome because these books are dealing with a lot of the same issues. A lot of the same instructions to the church are given in this book. And Ephesus was a place that was... was focused a lot on pagan worship. One of the ancient wonders of the world was the, the, the temple of Diana, which was, a, was a, which was a Greek god, also known today as the temple of Artemis. At the time, it was one of the best arch, uh, architectural uh, buildings that existed, and people came from miles around just to see it because it was so wondrous and beautiful. And these people worshipped pagans on the regular basis. And Paul spent a great deal of time there showing them that there was only one true God and that there was only one way to come to saving knowledge of God, and that was through Jesus Christ. And as he's imprisoned, he writes this letter to them. And in Ephesians 1, he begins by talking, he begins by giving thanks to God the Father that he's actually changed these people, that he's pulled them out of their pagan idolatry. And he starts going into this poem and this prayer where he starts talking about the praise of the glory of God. The glory of God is all of his books, especially in the first chapter. It's very important to Paul that God is glorified by what is happening within the church. And then he gives a prayer to God, asking God to give to the saints spiritual wisdom, knowledge, revelation, and enlightenment that they will be taught, that they will be affected by the Spirit of God to attain knowledge that will glorify God. Moving into Ephesians 2, he goes on to tell us about how our, our nature, as we were just singing about in song, that we are originally dead in sin, that we had no life within us. That we might walk around like people and think that we have life within us, but essentially we're dead in trespasses and sins and we have stone-cold hearts that are unaffected by God unless God works within us. But then by the grace of God, he takes out that heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh and he transforms a person from death to life. He raises us up and gives us life. Then he goes on to talk about the end of chapter 2 about Jews and Gentiles. How the promise was once for the Jews, but now, because of the way that they've rejected Christ, God has pulled in the Gentiles into one nation of God, into one body, into one holy temple. That it's all one. The gospel now makes all these people, these two groups, into one. And now the gospel spreads out into all the world. And affects people all over the world. Even a point of that in, in, in Galatians where, where Paul had to confront Peter on that very specific point. Because in the church of Galatia, the Jews and the Gentiles were eating at different tables. And at that point, Paul even had to call out Peter publicly and said, No, 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 you're not being right about, the, you're not being true about the truth of the gospel. You don't eat at different tables. You are the same group of believers. You eat together. You live together. You work together. You are unified. You are one holy body of Christ. Paul seeks for the unity of the church. And then in Ephesians 3, he talks about that mystery of the gospel, the fact that God would actually take the promises of Israel and now apply them to Gentiles because Christ His sacrifice was good enough to save everyone. And at the very end of uh, chapter 3, or near the end of chapter 3, in verse 16, we read that he would give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being firmly rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ. And in light of all of this, what God has done for us, our response, the two becoming one, this holy temple, this holy body of God that he's building up, 
Now how do we respond? And in chapter 4, verse 1, he writes, Therefore. Everything that we're reading in chapter 4 is in response to everything he's gone through in the first three chapters. And the first thing that he decides to talk about, the first thing that's of most importance to Paul here, as he's talked about the gospel and bringing people together, is that unity that we have through the Spirit of God. Verses 1 to 3, he says, The prisoner of the Lord exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Not just to be unified, but to bear it. To bear it, to seek to be unified as people. Take every opportunity to be a unified body of Christ. Because this is a new life that we have. We have one body, one spirit. If it's one spirit, that spirit doesn't spread out and and is one spirit to this group of people and another spirit to this group of people. The spirit should be unified. The spirit is always going to be unified in its purpose as it works within the church. Therefore, you have to be unified and come together as one church. He says this is a spiritual power. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are all one body of Christ. And furthermore, not only are we to seek to keep that unity, but God has given gifts to the church to help affect that unity in the church. Before he gave us apostles and prophets, but now he gives us evangelists, he gives us teachers, and he gives us pastors and preachers. People who are taught, people who have been, who have been given an understanding of the word of God, and God is placed in a point of authority in order to help teach and grow the church, to help build you up, to edify you, to humble you at times. And open up this word for you when you don't understand what it means and point you out and say, this is exactly what it means. Not based on their own personal feelings about it, but based on the testimony of the Spirit of God and the history of the entire church that has been unified in one purpose and one faith throughout the entirety of the church. People aren't coming up to completely new understandings of the Bible. Well, people have always come up with their own understandings of the Bible. But the church of God, his remnant, has always been pretty conclusive about these things. We understand what the Bible is trying to teach us. We understand the truths, at the very least, of the gospel. Who Christ is, why he came, why he suffered, why he died, the fact that he died, the fact that he was resurrected, and the fact that we have new life if we put our faith and trust in him. Verse 13, he says that all this is happening until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now this is something that's not going to fully happen until we're glorified. Right When Christ returns and we're given glorified, as Bob said earlier, glorified bodies, glorified minds, we're given complete understanding in Christ in all things. And it says that he will keep revealing truths to us throughout eternity. Always the the breadth and scope of God is so vast and unintelligible that it's going to take eternity for us to even grasp it. He's going to have to keep revealing it to us over and over and reveal new things to us throughout the entirety of our eternity and the age to come. We all work together. We all fit together until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And in light of all of that, we reach our passage today where he says, Therefore, That key word, that connecting word that he uses over and over again in Ephesians, essentially always tying this back to what he's already said before. He's constantly building a case here. 
light of what God has done for us, in light of our new lives, we are to be unified. And in light of that unity, he gets here and he says, first of all, I say and testify in the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. And the futility of their mind. He's saying you need to act differently. You need to think differently. You can't look and act like the world anymore. You've been changed for a purpose. You've been changed. You've been called to something. Now you have to actually look like that. You have to be a new man. You have to be different. You can't be the you you were before. You have to be a new you. Like we were saying, don't think that this is about you becoming your better self. This isn't about you choosing what you you want to be. We're going to get to that later. But he has something very specific in mind. And the first thing he has in mind is that you don't be like the world. You don't be like Gentiles. That's what we were. And we are no longer. We are no longer Gentiles. We are no longer of the world. And we no longer walk as the world walks. That, world, that word walk, it, it, it's, it's, it gives you that image of a habitual lifestyle. This is the way I walk. This is the way I live. I don't live like the world anymore. I don't walk like the world. I don't walk like Gentiles. He goes on and on and on with these different words that he uses to describe these Gentiles, being that they were futile in their mind, darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God, ignorant, hard of heart, callous, given over to sensuality, impure, greedy. Does that look like anything to you? Does that look like a way a Christian should live? Is that how your life looks? That idea of being futile, without hope, everything you do in futility, without an ability to understand things, as hard as you may try? The idea of being darkened and without light? Keep in mind, that's what you were. Just in the next chapter, in chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of that light consists in all goodness and righteousness of truth. In the opening of John's gospel, he said that Jesus Christ is light. He said in him was light. And that light was the life of men. And that light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not overtake it. These things are diametrically opposed. That idea of being alienated, not just alienated, but alienated from the life of God. The very life that God supplies to us, these people have no access to. Once again, that's something that we were also in that same state where he writes in chapter 2, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. These men are ignorant, it says. They have no capabilities. They have no wisdom. They're hard. They're hardened. They're without kindness. They're callous. When I lead music here, I play guitar and I get calluses on my fingers. And because Amar is our typical music leader, I don't do it for weeks at a time. And if I haven't taken the time to practice, the calluses get worn away as I work. And when I start practicing again, it hurts. You start pressing into those strings the first time after a few weeks, and it starts to hurt until you build up those calluses. Those calluses deaden the feeling in my fingertips. Now imagine having a calloused heart, incapable of feeling anything, incapable of feeling things like love 
and understanding, empathy. It's all gone. These people don't have it. They've already become callous. They've been given over to sensuality. They have no self-control. They are, in fact, sensuous. They practice the, the, the sexuality of love without the intimacy of love. They have no love within them. They are impure without purity. If you're impure, there's nothing, there's nothing good within you. You're, you're filled with deceit. And they are greedy. They have no gratitude for what God has already given them. They want more. So it's not hard to think about the fact that these people are people that we should not emulate We shouldn't walk as these people. We shouldn't be deceitful. We shouldn't be callous. We shouldn't be ignorant. We shouldn't be futile without hope. We have one true hope, and that's Jesus Christ. We always have hope. We always have feeling to that. There's a a difference here as we see... These people walk in the futility of their mind. They don't have the life of God. You either have the life of God or you're left with nothing but the futility of your own mind. I see it as a a baby chick that's not even born yet. It's still in the egg. Its heart is beating. It's breathing something. It's shifting around. It's trying to get out of the egg. It thinks it's alive, but it's not alive. And it has no idea the breadth and scope of life and what it actually is. It can't see outside of the egg. But to those of us that have been given new life in Christ, that egg broke. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. We're not stuck in the egg anymore. We see the kingdom of God. We see this world as a mere shadow of what is to come. We see our lives as a mere shadow of what they will be. We see happiness, joy, pain, fear, all these as mere shadows of the reality of what's going to come later. Eternal joy for some, eternal hell for others. We're not darkened to those things anymore. We aren't ignorant. So then he goes into the next section in verse 20. He says, but you, you did not learn Christ in this way. This is not why, why you learned Christ. That you is, is it's humase, by the way, it's plural. He's not talking to individuals, he's talking to the entire church. But you all did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you heard him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, to lay aside in reference to your former contact, the old man, You did not learn, you did not hear, you did not, you were not taught these things. He's talking about, as he's talking about, he says this is the truth in Jesus Christ. He's talking about conversion, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about that thing that you were taught from the word of God, whether it was preached to you or you read it in a, in a, in a gospel tract or a friend shared the gospel with you, that thing that you heard and learned that your life is not your own and that you owe something to God and only by faith in Christ can you attain eternal life. Only through faith in him can you attain forgiveness. That's what we learn. That's what we hear. That's what we are taught. That's what changes us. Have you heard that? Have you ever even heard that message? Are you aware of the gospel? Do you believe it? If you don't, you're not sure. Don't think that any change that you affect, this new man, whatever clothes you think you're going to put on, is going to have any effect for you. You have to hear and be taught and and learn from Jesus Christ. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where truth lies. That's where the gospel is. That's where conversion can be had. And he says, in light of what you've heard, you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you heard him and were taught in him. Two, verse 22 to lay aside in reference to your former conduct the old man which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit and 
to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You lay aside, you don't walk in the way of the Gentiles, in the former conduct, the old man, as a corrupt man, filled with lusts of deceit. Instead, you learn, you hear, you are taught, you're renewed in the spirit of your mind, which isn't the Holy Spirit, it's simply the spirit of the mind. It's, how the, it's, it's where the Holy Spirit affects your spirit. It's your conscience. It's God trying to teach you things about what is true. And you put on the new man. Keep in mind, this isn't a renovated old man. This is a completely new man. You are not a fixer-upper. You're not something God is just going to put some work into, sink some money into, invest some time in, and manifest something that will be better than what you are. No, you have to be completely new. You don't just cover up the old man. You put it off of you. You get rid of it. Think back to your old selves. Have you truly put off the old man? Are you still living in your former conduct? Are you still living as you used to live? Do you still have the same feelings, the same desires as you used to have before you claimed to be a Christian? Are you still corrupt? Do you still have lusts of deceit? Do you still go back to that other list? Are you futile, darkened, alienated? Do you ever feel callous or sensuous or impure? Or are you a greedy person? If you are, don't claim to be a new man because you're not. We are created initially in the likeness of Adam, and then we are transformed into what? The likeness of Christ. It's his righteousness that we attain. It's his clothes that we put on. And those clothes are, as it says in verse 24, righteous, they are holy, they are true. They are approved of God. They are the things that please God. So as it says, we learn Christ to attain the likeness of God. Ask yourself if you've truly heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and if it has turned you into a new man. Do not be deceived as he tells us in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not, be deceived, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. All those things. He says, Such were some of you. Some of you murdered people. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were vilers. Some of you were drunkards. But you were washed. But you were cleaned. But you were justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are not those things anymore. You are something completely new. And as it said, as I said earlier, he said, but you, all of you, together are new. You are something different And as we see that model of comparison in the first where he talks about what you aren't to do as far as being Gentiles and what you are to do as far as being the church, he goes on in this next section section, between verses 25 to 29 to give us constant comparisons between how you used to live and how you aren't to live anymore. Do this, don't do that. These are relational, neighborly relational instructions he's giving. He says, speak the truth in verse 25, for we are members of one another. Therefore, lay aside falsehood and speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. He's quoting there from Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 8, reading verse 16, these are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. So we speak truth, but it's not truth just so that you can claim to be a truthful person. It's not just for you. It's not just for yourself. You be a true person so that through truth comes justice, and through justice comes peace. 
among your brothers and sisters. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I'm going to spend a little time here because this is the probably the key this chapter as far as I'm concerned aside from the unity a lot of things come out of anger a lot of the problems that we have if you're going to have any problems in church are mostly going to stem from anger he's quoting from Psalm 4 where we read tremble and do not sin ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. It means that we shouldn't be self-seeking with our anger. If you're going to be angry about something, you can be angry about things that anger God. You can be angry about sin. You can be angry about those things that offend Him. Things that do not glorify God. You can be jealous for God, but don't be jealous for yourself. Don't be angry about things that have happened to you. That's just self-seeking. God said, vengeance is mine. Don't seek vengeance for yourself. And that's what we do over and over and over again. We like to be angry because we've been offended by something and we feel like we need to be justified. We need to be heard. We need to have have this wrong righted in our lives. That's not the truth. And sometimes there is no anger... There's, there's no real offense to begin with. We, we live this world nowadays as if everything is a text message. You ever get text messages? I, I hate text messages. I hate most forms of communication, honestly. But text messages in particular, because you never know what the context is, what somebody's saying. And sometimes somebody's done something for you, and you're like, hey, thanks, I appreciate it. And the person in the other mind might be seething. Hey, you know, I really did something great for you. Just a hey, thanks isn't really enough. I expected more. Meanwhile, you might be truly, really thanking them. Like, thank you very much in your heart of hearts. But that context doesn't always come through a text message. And the same thing happens in life. We assume things about the motivations of people. And it's not always true. Sometimes we're just not understanding what they're trying to convey to us. I'm not a very good communicator. Anybody who knows me will tell you that. I don't always convey my feelings properly. I don't always tell people how I feel about them. You know? Sometimes we're bad at it. You know why we're bad at it? Because sin corrupts every part of the body. Corrupts every part of the person. And sometimes people aren't going to be that good at fully communicating how much you mean to them. Or how much you should love them. Or how much they love you. There's a quote that I remembered from long ago, and I always thought it was an amazing quote. It's by a man named uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. He was an author. And he wrote this, this book about you know, this unrequited love that he had. And he said, early on in the book, he said, I, uh, I've come to learn once again that misunderstandings and inertia cause perhaps more to co- go wrong in this world than slyness and evil intent. And it's very true. Not that slyness and evil intent aren't out there, but sometimes we just misinterpret what's happening. And as we lay on our bed and we dwell on these things, they snowball into anger. They snowball into frustration. They snowball into offense that might never have been intended. And it's all internally happening. We cause the problem because we just don't want to let it go. The Bible doesn't say that. It says, do not give the devil any opportunity. Give the devil no opportunity. Clean out whatever, wherever it is in your mind that you're harboring offenses against somebody, wherever it is that you're harboring anger, resentment, wherever it is, dump it now. Don't leave it for later. We treat it, you know, sometimes people box it up and store it. Some people claim that it's gone, but it's in like that computer where it's the recycling bin where you put it in there and it's technically trash but you can always bring it back you can just restore it at moments notice and people are just waiting for that like it's gone it's in the trash it's not there but at a moment's notice they're just ready to just restore everything so that they can bring it all back up on that moment that you've really just pushed them to the line do not do that there's another quote that I heard long ago when I became a Christian. 
And I wrote it at the beginning of my Bible because it's something I never want to forget. It's by Augustine. And he, he, he writes something and then he ends up quoting Psalm 103 where he says, at the beginning he says, Shall anything restore us to hope except your complete mercy since you have begun to change us? You know to what extent you have already changed me. For first of all, you did heal me of the lust for vindicating myself. So that you might then, Psalm 103, forgive all my remaining iniquities and heal all my diseases and redeem my life from corruption and crown me with loving kindness and tender mercies and satisfy my desires with good things. Stop seeking to vindicate yourselves. This world wants to tell you that this world is your oyster. You go out and you grab it. You want something, you take it. Somebody offends you, don't let anybody treat you like that. I'm here to tell you, the Bible says, you don't have to live your life like that. You are free at every instance to simply live in peace with people. You can take every opportunity to forgive them. God's never going to judge you for it. God will love you for that. Jesus Christ said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. There's no unity or peace with angry people. In Proverbs 15, we read, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger quiets a dispute. Strife rips people apart. Quieting dispute pulls people together. That's the unity of the faith. That's what people need to do, especially within the church. Paul says, don't steal, but labor. Perform what is good, having something to share with people. Be selfish people, not selfless people. Seek to do things for your brothers and sisters. Seek to be better. Seek to to do whatever you can to give them whatever you have to help them. Says he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for building up. When you tear down people, you take away their, their integrity and they want to leave, they want to hide, they want to cower and stick their head in the sand. Building people up allows people to, 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 to truly feel like they have purpose in this world. And we know that that purpose only comes through Christ. But he's not telling you to build people up with, with, with vain exercises of the world. He's telling you to build people up with spiritual truth and knowledge. Learn Christ. Learn him. Be taught in him at all times. Approaching the end here. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Again, that verb to grieve is plural. It's not talking about your ability to offend God when you've done something wrong. It's talking about the Holy Spirit's work in the church. Do not seek to disrupt that in the church, ever. Don't ever seek to cause disunity. Don't ever seek to lead someone to sin. Don't ever seek to do anything that will ever cause the Spirit to... uh, Well, the Spirit has the power to do whatever it wants. But don't ever try to stir up strife in your church. Don't ever try to pull people away from each other. Be peacemakers. At all times, in all things, you pull the church together. That's why he says in verse 31, let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you with all malice. Those are the things that cause disunity. Those are the things that grieve the spirit. And I just read an article that says that sometimes people that do these things think they have the church's best interest at heart. But they don't. They're truly trying to vindicate their own point of view, their own intentions, their own will for the church as opposed to God's will for the church. And where they think they're doing well, they're actually ripping the church apart. Do not do that under any and all circumstances. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. 
It's about, he says, be gracious. Don't forget, that's unmerited favor. You would be gracious to people whether they merited it or not. We don't just be gracious to people because they're doing good things for us. Even people that have offended us, you can still be gracious to. You can still forgive people. Why? Because God has forgiven us. Not just for our sins, but in the most wonderful way, he's made us alive with Jesus Christ. We maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's all tied to unity. Quick testimony. Not yesterday, because we didn't witness yesterday because of the rain, but previous Saturday, I was out witnessing in the Bronx. And there's a a new group that's on the rise in this area, if you're not familiar with them, the, the black Hebrew Israelites. These are black men that believe that they have the promises that were given to Old Testament Israel. They believe that all minorities are in this special place with God and that they've all turned, they, they all receive the, the promises of God and that white people are, are Esau and that God is going to judge us in the end, which is, is heresy and blasphemy in, in many, 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 many ways. But people are listening to them. And when I was out witnessing, there was a group of them there who hadn't seen them in the Bronx before. And a young man that I just met two weeks prior, he was at our picnic. I met him at our picnic, Jason. Uh, If you haven't met him, he's a wonderful brother. Hopefully we get to meet him here. But he came out witnessing with me. And he started conversing with these gentlemen. And at one point they pulled me over. And as they pulled me over, they said to Jason, they said, is this... this is this your brother? Is this your pastor? Everybody thinks I'm a pastor when I'm on the street for some reason. But they said, is, it, is this, this your brother? And Jason said to them, he said, this man is more of a brother than you guys are to me. A man that I only knew for two weeks. And we had a conversation about the gospel and he already knew that we had more in common. These men were offended by that. They're like, how dare you, a black man, say to a group of black men that we're not your brother. He's like, no, my, my identity doesn't have anything to do with my race. Just as my identity, and I hope your identity, doesn't have anything to do with your race. Our identity comes solely through Jesus Christ. We either believe in him or we don't. We're either clothed in his righteousness or we are not. So we don't have unity with the world. We don't have identity with them. And we have to beware of anything that seeks, seeks to disunify the church. Really quickly, in Jeremiah chapter 23, the first verse says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares Yahweh. Now that's speaking to false teachers, but don't think that that can't apply to anybody else who seeks to scatter the sheep of God. We never disunify the sheep. We never seek to scatter people. We only seek to unify them. Romans 16, Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and stumblings, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. I think a lot of people might catch this, that first part, and say, keep your eye on it, and think, okay, I'm going to keep this guy close to the vest. I'm going to make sure he's not doing anything shady in the church. No, he says, you do these things from a distance. You put these people away from you. You see people causing disunity in the church. You see people causing dissension in the church. You put that person on lockdown. That person is on quarantine. So you make sure that that person has their heart right with God. Nothing disrupts this church. This is not my church. It's not Bob's church. It's not Paul's church. This is Jesus Christ's church. And woe to anybody that would cause disruption here. Very quickly to finalize. In the final, and I continued this into chapter 5 very briefly just because it's so important to understand what this all means. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We don't walk as Gentiles. We walk in love just as Christ walked. We are not being transformed as a church into a new man for self. We are being transformed into the bride of Jesus Christ. Collectively, we are new people that look and act just like Jesus Christ. We are completely unified in purpose and spirit with him. In Revelation 19, we read, Let us rejoice and be glad and give, to the, glory for, and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints." 
which is the work of God according to Ephesians 2.10. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who, invited, who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. So brothers and sisters, please consider these things. Consider how you live among your brothers and sisters. Consider how the Spirit is working among you and your brothers and sisters. Seek to fellowship with your brothers and sisters. Seek to be taught by those that have given as teachers and elders and pastors in your church. Don't ever seek to disunify the church. Be unified. And if you're here and you don't know what I'm talking about, then I'm here to tell you that you can be saved just like all of us have been saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to have unity with people, not unity with just a, I'm not talking about like the the Fast and the Furious franchise where Vin Diesel says everybody's family. You know, we're just part of a special little group. No, this is bigger than that. This is more important than that. These are people that aren't just unified to other people. These are people that are unified to God himself through the work that he's done by shedding his blood on the cross, giving his life for us, and then taking his life up again that we might also be resurrected with him on the final day. I'll leave you with these final, this final one word. When I was doing this study, I, I have my, my parents' old Bibles from back when they were Bible teachers when I, before I was even born. And my mother's Bible, I opened it up just to see if she had any interesting notes on this. And all she had was a giant, at this particular section where it says, uh, the walk of the believer is a new man in Christ. She just had a big, big asterisk mark and the word study. Study this passage. There's a lot here. We want to understand how we are to live, how we are to be better, how we are to change ourselves into the new man so that we can be more like Christ And together, as one body of Christ, prepare ourselves to be joined with him in eternity as his bride. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you once again, Lord. Thank you for teaching us this afternoon. Thank you for opening your word to us and allowing us to to hear it, Father. We know that we, we learn these things through Christ, for he is truth. Truth is in him, Father, and we seek to attain the unity of the faith as you preach to us, Lord. Please work within us, Father, to be unified as brothers and sisters. Give us every opportunity to display love towards one another. Allow your spirit to take every opportunity to keep us unified as one holy group of believers that will be joined with you on that day of glory when you return, that day of redemption, as it said, that day for which we were sealed by your spirit where we would be completely transformed, completely fixed, and completely made new, shiny and brand new as your beloved eternal children. Thank you for these things, Father. May you have all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.